Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is the final part about 19-year-old Michael Douglas Dowdle, a baby-faced killer who had brutally bludgeoned a woman to death And although this could have been dismissed as an isolated drunken mistake, this murder may mark the beginning of a serial killer in the making. Murder Marley's research used authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 155, The Sadistic Little Drummer Boy, Part 2. Today, I'm standing on the corner of De Morgan Road and Townsmead Road in Fulham, SW10. A few roads south of Jane Andrews' attack on her sleeping boyfriend Tommy Cressman. A ten-minute stroll from the home invasion by the Devil's Child. And a few feet from the spot on the River Thames, where an infamous murderer supposedly disposed of an unrecorded victim. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Being typical of the hodgepodge way that most of London is built, this street is a mishmash of styles from the last two centuries. There's a long row of identical Victorian terraces, an old wharf refashioned as an office space in posh flats, a 1970s tower block with a recent lick of paint, and of course, near to what used to be Ismailia Road, sits a set of flats imaginatively called Ismailia House. Like most new builds, Ismailia House was constructed in the old time British tradition of whack it up, bish bash bosh, and claim it's for the locals 
only to flog off 90% to a Saudi investor before a single brick is set. With the three worst flats reserved for council tenants and the obligatory 10% set aside for local amenities. Which means a few bins, a Tesco Express and a Boogie's. Oh yes, all the essentials. Behind these flats once sat Ismailia Road. But long since demolished, it is now just a bridleway. On the ground floor of number five lived Mabel Jean Hill, a 34-year-old divorced mother of three who had provided a safe space for herself and her family. By sheer misfortune, whilst travelling home from a nice night out, she had struck up a conversation with a small, baby-faced youth who looked harmless enough. His name was Michael Douglas Dowdell. And it was here, on Saturday the 10th of October 1959, that Mabel would meet this fledgling serial killer who had already murdered one woman. And it looked likely that Mabel would be his next. I picked up a prostitute in Trafalgar Square. She called the taxi, and I remember she gave an address of somewhere in Kilburn. I had sex with her and went to sleep. When questioned, her attacker would claim that it was an accident, and that was also what the evidence would suggest. On Friday the 19th of December 1958, at roughly 6pm, the body of 31-year-old sex worker Veronica Murray was found in her first-floor bedsit at 58 Charteris Road in Kilburn. With no signs of forced entry and two sets of fingerprints found on a teacup, this suggested that she had let her attacker in and had sex with him. Naked, except for her brown pullover pulled up over her head, Veronica had been brutally bludgeoned to death, with her skull smashed using an ornamental cast-iron dumbbell taken from the mantelpiece. This suggested her attack was not premeditated, but was most likely a provoked attack of aggression. With no items of any obvious value known to have been stolen from her room, except for a bottle of whiskey, the motive was unlikely to be robbery, but more of an opportunist theft by a drunken punter. For the police, this case hadn't any of the hallmarks of a fledgling serial killer in their midst. If anything, it resembled any number of attacks on lone sex workers in their own homes across the last seven decades. Although this one did have one or two unusual details which made it stand out. 
across her abdomen. Three identical circular abrasions in a V-shape marked her flesh. Inflicted post-mortem. They had been made using a manufactured item of unknown origin. Their meaning was baffling. But as any sex worker will tell you, everyone has a strange sexual perversion, whether pain, pee or poo, tickling, smearing or strangling, some like feet, food or feathers, and some like to inflict scars. Found with her legs splayed, it was difficult to determine if sex had taken place but the pathologist had hypothesized that her attacker may have raped her using a wooden coat hanger. Potentially being impotent, it is not uncommon for rapists to only become aroused by pain, strangulation and death. And having fled without reporting his offense, again, this was not unusual amongst pimps and punters. The police investigation was headed up by Detective Superintendent Evan Davies, who found more dead ends than fresh clues. With no witnesses, they had no description of the assailant or an accurate timeline leading up to her murder. They had his fingerprints, but it matched no known felon in their files. The taxi driver was found, but he remembered little of this unremarkable fare and being such a private woman who very few people knew, they interviewed her friends, canvassed her haunts, and made a public appeal on the front page of Britain's most prominent tabloid. But no one came forward. Even Michael Douglas Dowdle thought that he had got away with murder. But this motive, which caused him to kill, would awaken once again. The little drummer boy had served in the 1st Battalion of the Welsh Guards for almost four years. Being one of the lowest ranks, the boy was mercilessly bullied for being little, weak and Welsh. My army mates think I'm queer, so I have a drink and then I feel better and more important. To prove his manhood, he drank, smoked and shagged to excess and unconsciousness. It was a fruitless mission which only made him look foolish and far exceeding his pitiful wage he needed another scheme. It seemed innocent enough to pay his fellow soldiers to scrub his shirts and to bully his boots to a high mirror shine for a few shillings a time. But this money-making scheme helped to sow the seeds of a potential serial killer. Many times, Michael went AWOL from the barracks at Purbright in Chelsea. But this wasn't just to sink some suds or to dip his dirty wick into a prosy. 
This was part of his second career as a burglar. It seems almost inconceivable when you look at him. Given his head, shaped like a doughy little egg, popped with two dim dots for eyes, and a set of ears like a crashed minicab with the doors wide open, and being too big for his weasley little body, at best he resembled a mixing bowl spoon. It's laughable that this boy was even considered a soldier. And being so unthreatening, he didn't look like a burglar. But maybe that was it. Being small and weak, no one suspected him. As the mark of every successful serial killer isn't the sadistic nature of their crimes, but how, in ordinary life, they seem to blend in. Across 1958 and 1959, this teenage tearaway committed a spree of at least 20 brazen burglaries in the more affluent parts of London, including Mayfair, Chelsea, Knightsbridge and Fulham. On Saturday the 10th of October 1959, at the exclusive Westbury Hotel at 37 Conduit Street in Mayfair, Having wandered its corridors, he gained access to the penthouse suite. Its occupant, who was in Paris that day with his wife Bonita, was the British Hollywood actor, George Sanders. I did not know it was the Hartnell suite until I came out and saw it written across the door. Having ransacked the drawers, he stole an undetermined stash of ladies' jewels a bottle of whiskey, a tube of toothpaste. I like the, like the taste of it. It belonged, it belonged to George Sanders. And having stolen a pair of George's shoes, he left behind a pair of his own size sevens outside the door. Which seeing that, they looked like they had been through a mangle. The service staff promptly had them polished. Having fled, Feeling either a sense of guilt, or knowing that one item in particular was too hot to handle. I was going to was send going a bracelet, send back, bracelet back, but I threw it in the river. And as far as we know, it's still there. One week later, on Saturday the 18th of October 1959, he broke in via a small window at the rear of a four-skinner place at the back of Sloan Square. It was a small Victorian brown brick terrace set in a dark unlit alley and was the home of 71-year-old seamstress Annie Belcher who was fast asleep in her bed. As he ransacked every drawer and cupboard for valuables the noise startled Annie and she began to scream, hollering so loud that it startled her neighbours, Eric and Joyce Christmas, at house number one. Panicked and angered at his plans being thwarted, Michael repeatedly beat the defenceless old lady over the head with a cast iron poker, leaving her 
for dead. Rushed to St. George's Hospital with a fractured skull, a broken wrist, and a face so swollen she risked losing her eye. Annie returned home one week later to stay with her daughter. And at least physically, she went on to make a good recovery. On Wednesday the 21st of November 1959, one month later, Michael broke into the home of William Sloan, an Australian businessman living on Markham Street in Chelsea. Thankfully, neither he nor his family were in, so no one got hurt. But as before, the burglar left behind his fingerprints, stealing a clock, a pair of gloves, several bottles of gin and vermouth, several packets of cigarettes, and a distinctive red and white lighter emblazoned with the words and the logo of Texas Gulf Sulphur Company. The police had no idea who this prolific burglar was. Having heard that his name was probably Mick and that he was either a local labourer or a West End musician, they canvassed the building sites and nightclubs and interviewed hundreds of men but drew a blank. Their description of him was vague. He was either aged between his mid-twenties and his mid-thirties. He was slim to slightly built. His height was not short, but not tall. And possibly owing to political upset, many said that he was Irish, when actually, he was Welsh. In fact, the only detail that anybody got right was that Mick had a long scar down the right-hand side of his nose. But who was he? The fingerprints found in almost all of the 20 or so burglaries he committed matched those found at the murder scene of Veronica Murray. But they didn't match any known felon in the police's files. His M.O. was often similar. He stole saleable items like jewels, cigarettes and alcohol. When disturbed, he would inflict a high level of violence, whether by bludgeoning or strangulation. And in some cases, he marked their thighs and abdomens with three circles in a V-shape using an item of unknown origin. By November 1959, 11 months after the unsolved murder of Veronica Murray. Having attributed at least 20 known burglaries and assaults to a man known only as Scarface Mick, Scotland Yard would launch one of the biggest manhunts since the 10 Rillington Place killer, John Reginald Christie. But uncertain of his exact description, Michael Douglas Dowdle was free to attack again. The date was Saturday the 10th of October 1959, barely a few hours after the burglary on George Sanders' hotel room. The location was four and a half miles south in Fulham. And the victim's name was Mabel Jean Hill. 
a 34-year-old divorced mother of three, living in a ground-floor flat at 5 Vismalia Road. As a busy single parent to Alan, Leslie and Jean, all aged between 6 and 12, once in a blue moon, she rightfully felt that she deserved a night off, especially as this night was her birthday. As planned, she met with her friends for drinks in Streatham. She went shopping with her mother in the West End. She had dinner in a good pub. She went to the cinema. And she caught the last tube out of Leicester Square tube station. Carrying bags of presents, as she stood on the southbound platform of the Piccadilly Line tube, a young man with a babyish face asked her for a light. Given his slurring, it was clear that he had been drinking. And although his white overcoat was a little tatty, his shoes were unmistakably shiny and expensive. Where you going? He asked, beaming a smile to this lady who was almost twice his age. Home, she politely piped, wisely giving him nothing more but for him, that was enough. Joining her in the carriage, for the rest of the journey, he spoke about his army career, the band, and he said that his name was Mick. And although she spotted the scar on his nose, his description was still several days from being reported in the papers. Hoping to lose her unwelcome admirer, Mabel changed to Earl's court, bidding him a polite goodbye. But instead, he continued his conversation and followed her onto the southbound district line train to Fulham. Again, she tried to shake off this little pest at Fulham Broadway, but he followed her out of the station and onto the deserted street. All while rambling on, about how he should come back to hers for a coffee, a coffee or, something. Coffee. Or, something. or something. It was 1am. The last bus had gone and with no taxis in sight, he persistently matched her step for step down Waterford Road and Harwood Road, west along New Kings Road, dog-licking onto the Wandsworth Bridge Road and after 25 minutes, during which he had tried to kiss her twice. She turned onto the unlit gloom of Ismailia Road, with Michael a few feet behind her. Opening the door to her ground floor flat at 5 Ismailia Road, I went in. He came in too. I said I didn't want him in because it was late. He said he just wanted a cup of coffee and then he would go. Wanting him to leave. To Mabel, a quick cup of coffee may have seemed like a harmless solution. But then again, everybody makes mistakes. Having seated her unwelcome guest at the kitchen table, 
She put on the kettle and popped into the bedroom to check on her children, who were all fast asleep. For what must have seemed like an indeterminably long time, they sat, he talked, and she waited for the coffee in his cup to be finished. But barely a few minutes in, without any provocation from Mabel, he removed his shirt and his jumper. I told him to put the things back on and to go home. And that's the last thing I can remember. It's unlikely that this was a planned robbery or a premeditated murder. But as often happened in the sadistic mind of this fledgling serial killer, was that, with his sexual advances having been rejected, Maybe his tears welled, his lips quivered, a tantrum sparked, and his hate-fueled violence erupted. Having grabbed a pair of stockings off the radiator, with his knuckles tight, he pulled both ends. And before she could even emit a decent scream to call out for help, Michael strangled Mabel on the floor, straining until she drifted into unconsciousness. Fixing the knot behind her head, as the nylons twisted about her crucifix, the sadistic maniac savagely ripped at her clothes until her pale white thighs and abdomen were exposed. Just as he had done with Veronica Murray, he could truly do something unimaginable to her body, which was now all his. Only in his mission to mutilate Mabel, Michael had forgotten about three little things. Her children. Disturbed by a brief but a blood-curdling scream. Dressed in just their pajamas, 12-year-old Alan tiptoed from the bedroom, followed by 11-year-old Joan and 7-year-old Leslie. Having fled, her assailant was nowhere to be seen and thankfully was no danger to the children. But seeing their half-naked mother lying on the kitchen floor with her legs splayed, and her head swollen and purple. Terrified and unsure what to do, they ran out into Ismailia Road, screaming, Come quickly, we can't wake up Mummy. Patrick Mahoney, their next-door neighbour, cut the stockings, called the police. Mabel was taken by ambulance to St. Stephen's Hospital, and being saved by her children, she made a good recovery. The investigation was headed up by Detective Inspector Peter Vibart of Chelsea Police Station. Questioning Mabel from her hospital bed, she bravely gave a solid description of a 5 foot 7 inch baby faced Irishman or Welshman called Mick who was a heavy-drinking, chain-smoking drummer 
in an army band in the West End. She even remembered the long scar down the right-hand side of his nose. Robbery was ruled out as a motive, as the only item he stole was a half bottle of whiskey. But forensics did find several sets of fingerprints on a blue-patterned coffee cup, a cigarette tin, and two milk bottles. Although in this case, they could never determine why he had touched a wooden coat hanger. Examined in hospital, the most startling aspect of this case were the marks on Mabel's body. Made by a manufactured item of unknown origin, in several places were found a set of circular abrasions in a strange V-shape, as well as similar marks on her stomach, her chest, and her feet. What they meant, the police didn't know. And not being part of the original investigation one year earlier at 58 Charteris Road, D.I. Peter Vibart had never seen anything like this before. But having contacted Kilburn Police, now he had a match. The notorious sneak thief, known only as Scarface Mick, was without doubt the same sadistic maniac who had murdered Veronica Murray and had attempted to kill Annie Belcher and Mabel Hill. One of London's largest manhunts had been launched, but who he was remained a mystery. They had his fingerprints and witnesses, but what they didn't have was a name. Trawling through an extensive history of Scarface Mick, D.I. Vibart noted that after the 21st of November 1959, several assault victims had stated that Mick, who was a heavy smoker, had used a distinctive red and white lighter emblazoned with Texas Gulf Sulphur Company as stolen from William Sloan's home. It seemed like a long shot, but desperate for any fresh clues, a photo of the lighter was published in the newspapers. Having been sold for five shillings to a guardsman in the Welsh Guards camp, on the 24th of November 1959, just two days after Mabel's attack, Michael Douglas Dowdell was arrested. Interviewed at Chelsea Police Station, Michael came across as cocky and arrogant. A remorseless thief who stole to feed his petty addiction to drink and sex. Without any emotion, he confessed and he was charged with several counts of burglary and theft. He must have thought that he had got away with murder. But the burglary charges were just a ploy, as the second he admitted to those robberies, that evidence would directly implicate him elsewhere. In the interview, DCI ACOD stated, In addition to housebreaking, we are investigating several serious offences I believe you committed in Chelsea, Fulham, 
and Kilwin. Michael's face dropped, and he gave a full confession. Assessed by Dr. Archibald Lee of Bethlehem Hospital, Michael was described as a psychopath and a sexual pervert. In a two-day trial held in court one of the Old Bailey, he pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. And with the death penalty soon to be abolished, Michael Douglas Dowdell was sentenced to life. Having served 15 years in prison, suffering a lung infection and chronic hepatitis, in July 1975, he was released on license, but died on the 10th of November 1976 at the Royal Free Hospital. Outside of Veronica Murray, Annie Belcher and Mabel Hill, he never confessed to any further murders or attempted murders. Although police believed that he may have killed as many as five. So was he just a fledgling serial killer in the making? Or a fully-fledged sadist with many victims undiscovered? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, for those who enjoy wondering how many cakes a fat bald man can stuff into his mouth without swallowing... Join me after the break for a little quiz and some extra details in Extra Mile. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporter, who is Leslie M. Ooh, very mysterious. I thank you, Leslie, for supporting the show, and I thank everyone who continues to listen to and support Murder Mile. Murder Mile was research written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <coughs> oh.
see. Lovely. Hey, Murky Milers. The Murky Milers, the ones who stay to the very end. The ones who haven't switched off already. Oh, no, I don't like this next bit. It'll switch it off. Boring. Uh, how are we all? We all good? We all healthy and well and doing good and happy and... Uh, ooh, bird shit on my window. Lovely. What a treat. What a treat. Life doesn't get any better than having bird shit on your window. Bird shit on my window. I'm going to go and make a cup of coffee. Oh, welcome to Extra Mile, by the way. As always, uh, I should really say this, the unscripted, unedited bit, not essential. You don't need to stay for this bit. Uh, as I mentioned before, this is not the podcast. This is the extra part of the podcast. So, therefore, you've listened to the podcast. So, uh, you can switch off now if you want to. This is just extra bit. People seem to enjoy it. So, uh, this is just extra for them. So, uh, if you don't like it, not really a problem. I'm going to make a cup of tea. Well, not really tea. As we all know, it'll be a coffee, won't it? Ah, oh, side window open. Yeah. Ooh, it looks like it might be... Uh, it might be a bit drizzly outside. I tell you what, I'm gonna stick my I'm gonna stick my plants on the roof so they can get a little a little bit of water. I was gonna do it last night, but it was really windy last night. It was the gale force winds were kicking in, so uh, oh, oh, they're just my lavender plants. They're doing good. Miraculously, I haven't killed them. I have a habit of killing plants. I don't know why. Anytime they, uh, anytime they're near me, they just seem to die. I'm just not very good at it. But my lavender plants have survived. Uh, my little uh, mountain cactus is doing well. Although the last one I had got black fly, uh, and then he he died. Oh, I'm just not very good with plants. I kill them really easily. But these seem to be doing okay. Even the little lavender plant who looked like he was dying, he's still hanging in there. Oh, cool. I think I might put my little hat on because it's bloody cold. Bloody cold this morning. We've had days of uh, it being all cold and horrible. Had, have had the fire on for a couple of days. Not last night. It was one of those nights where it was just a little bit too warm to have a fire on. And I hate lying in bed. You know, when you're lying there and you just go, I'm too hot. And the problem with a fire, a, a coal and, a coal and a log fire, just can't switch it off you can't really do much about it you can you can temper the heat but once the heat is in you're kind of a bit screwed really so i made myself a nice little hot water bottle got wrapped up went into bed lovely um i just got a coffee on cake of cake of the day for me is a rock cake oh lovely they're like a, they're like a, a splatted scone with cherries on the inside and some sugar on top they're nice and simple uh, and I'm going to treat myself to that later on. That's all good. Uh, what else is going on? Um, uh, I th I'm going to put a little link in the show notes to St Mungo's. It's a homeless charity. It helps uh, helps uh, people who are homeless on the streets of kind of Soho and kind of West End of London. But it, it does a lot of work helping people who kind of been released from prison and the problem is when you're released from prison a lot a lot of the services aren't there for you a lot of people on the streets are uh, ex-prisoners as well because they're in a dire situation it's hard to get a job when you're uh, an ex-prisoner uh so this is what i'm doing with my family instead of buying presents for each other like going oh let's buy each other a present and you open it up and go great it's something i didn't really want and it's going to sit in the corner it's a waste of money so what we've all decided to do is do no donations to charity um 
some of our family are doing uh, Macmillan. I've raised a shit ton for Macmillan in the past. Uh, so this time I want to do something local, and that's for St. Mungo's. So if you want to, link in the show notes. You can, you're welcome to. Uh, if you want to do something nice for Christmas, instead of buying people presents that they won't like, uh, do a donation to charity. That's what we're doing. Could, uh, coffee's done. Pop that in there. Uh, is it still raining? Yeah, it's drizzly and the coot doesn't like it. In fact, I might just close my window a bit just because it's very drizzly, but too drizzly, I think. Um, so yeah, I think this is going to be a regular thing now. I think I think it's because we because we're all grown up and we don't need presents. What do we really need? And it's. I think it's a waste, waste of money and things when you buy someone something and he, you haven't really fully thought it through and you, you buy them a present and they go, ah, oh, thank you. And you know full well it's going to get shoved in the corner. So we're doing that. We're, doing, uh, we're all going to do uh, our own donations to charity on, on behalf of everyone else. And then on Christmas Day, you treat yourself to something nice, which I think is a better idea. And then you open it up in front of everyone and go, look, I've bought myself this. And they go, ooh, lovely. Uh, what else is going on? Um, just to say uh, thank you to everyone who's left lovely reviews of Murder Mile on uh, either your podcast platforms or things like that. It really does help. Really is lovely to read. I read them all. They're really helpful. If you haven't done one before, pl- please do one. It, you know, for, for the big podcasts, it doesn't make a difference. They don't give a shit. But for the little, small, independent ones like us, do you know, the, the people who are just sitting there in their bedrooms with a laptop on a microphone doing something because they love it, and getting very little back from it it really helps and it really helps get fight to get us up the charts we're competing against people like wondery and the bbc and people like that and it's it's impossible but it's and it's all it's it's even harder when you know people listen to like your podcast for like a couple of minutes and they go oh i don't like this negative one star review or oh, oh michael michael said mentioned something that i disagreed with once in one episode oh one star review you know it really drags everything down unfortunately i've had a bit of a run of them recently i've had a i don't know where people have found my podcast but i've had a run of really grumpy negative people who are like oh i disagree with this i disagree with him saying one word or oh, one star and it's just oh you miserable bastards and unfortunately because it's i'm a small podcast it really drags down uh our positioning in the charts and things like that so if you want to um yeah, that would be really lovely if you uh, go onto your podcast app do a review unfortunately spotify doesn't allow that because spotify are twats iTunes can be a pain in the ass. iTunes is much appreciated though. Or just or just if you can't just just share the podcast with your friends and just expose 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 how much you love the show. That would be really helpful. Thank you very much. Oh dear. Um just as a reminder we've got three more episodes to go. So a, definitely a single episode next week. This was originally going to be a single, but I turned it into a double because I felt it was it was one of those cases, the more I researched into it, the more it expanded. So obviously it became a two-parter. I wanted to do one, the first half was kind of, oh, this is an, could be an innocent little boy. It could be a bit of an accident. You know, something may have just happened by mistake. And part two is obviously, no, there's a lot more to this than you think. And in fact, there's more than we could ever know. Um, so uh, there's it's definitely a single parter next week and then we end with a special two-parter oh normally i would do a big 
end with a big uh, like a 10 parter or something like that but this is a special two parter that i've been working on for a long time so uh, uh and then don't forget that'll take us into january and february i'm off in january and february because i'm doing all the research uh and then we're back end of february probably start of march so uh as of time of recording i have two more walking tours to go just two more so uh the 5th of december and the 12th of december and then it's done this current tour so hopefully spring and summer next year i hopefully i'll do a new style tour i haven't got any details about that I, i'm not planning it just yet but details will be posted on this podcast just a reminder to some people it's not the podcast that's finishing it's the walking tour they're two different things murder Mile walks in its current form is finishing the podcast is not that continues there i've said it no one needs to ask me again <laughs> anyway right let's do some questions uh question number one don't forget as always because i haven't edited this yet some of the uh, answers or the questions may not appear in the episode question number one which actor's hotel room did michael burgle question number two uh from this room he stole jewelry shoes some alcohol and what else you can eat kudo side uh he's been standing on there's a sunken boat next to us and he comes out of the water and he shakes himself off and then he stands on the boat because he's got big fat wader feet he stands there and he stamps his his feet in a kind of petulant way like eva does when I'm, i haven't made a cocktail quick enough and it's funny it reverberates on the steel hull of the boat and it looks like he's, he's bashing out a beat it's very funny i'm trying to capture it on my phone but he keeps he only does it briefly uh, question number three what now stands where ismailia road once stood Question number four. What colour overcoat was Michael wearing on the night he attacked Mabel? Question number five. Which tube station did Mabel meet Michael? I hate the fact that he's called Michael. I find it really unsettling. You should never have a murderer called Michael. Uh, Question number six. This is quite a hard one, I think. Uh, Name Mabel's children. Question number seven. What was the only item Michael stole from Veronica's bedsit? Question number eight. Where did Michael go back to after Veronica's murder? That question may have been in part one, but I think I edited this out of part one. Uh, Question number nine. How many years was Michael in the Welsh Guards? And question number ten. What was thrown into the Thames? Ooh. Uh, so this is one of these uh, cases that's it's interesting the, the 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 files in the archives unfortunately are held for another 20 to 40 years so we'll, I, you know i would love to get hold of these files because i think they're fascinating i'd love to know what extra murders are in there what the police did know this is just I, i've had to i've had to spend months just piecing this together from different sources and double checking things and luckily i've got loads of different archives that i can use but unfortunately the original police files aren't there uh so yeah it, it's a fascinating case it, it kind of begs the question if you think about it he he didn't bring a weapon with him at any point so he's very much an opportunist thief he's very much works on uh kind of emotions kind of drive him he's more of an opportunist thief uh, yeah i would say we, what drove him to kill we really don't know uh 
it's weird, weird. Why why did he attack some women and not others? It seems to be the same as the Blackout Ripper. There seems to be a lot of correlation there as well. Uh, why does he always seem to steal whiskey? That seems to be something that pops up every so often. And when I'm going through the a lot of the archive files, before we know that he's of the later attacks, there's all these references to him stealing alcohol from people's houses. So uh, oh, it's very odd. Um... I'm also guessing that there must almost certainly be a string of unsolved rapes in and around the West London area in 1958-59. And according to some of the records, he committed a series of these attacks in Soho, many of which went unreported. So I'm hoping to do, over the years, to do a little bit more research on this. But uh, what I can find, I I just want those files. I really want those files. So, hmm... Um, Let's dive in. The marks on Mabel were slightly unusual. She had the the uh, circular marks on her uh, on her abdomen, but also they mentioned on the left hand side of her chest, and there were the same marks on her feet too. Um, uh, Di Peter Vibart uh, said that he thought that the circular marks on her body could have been made using the neck of a bottle. Uh, now, whether that was used forcefully or whether he heated up the bottle, uh, we don't know. But uh, a forensic scientist said uh, they could not be sure that it was the neck of the bottle, but it was a manufactured item with a flat end that was circular. So it's likely it could be, and he always seemed to have a bottle with him, but we don't know. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, police turned up, as mentioned, at Mabel's house and ambulance arrived. She was taken to the hospital her children were looked after by neighbours and then were taken to a a London County Council home in Greenwich where they stayed for about a week and then they were returned back to her mother Um, Mabel was taken to St Stephen's Hospital which is currently where the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital is is at the moment it was built on the same site Uh, she survived she gave the police a description of her attacker Uh, fingerprints were found at the scene and again they matched in inverting commas, Scarface Mick, uh, who she says was a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker. Ah, uh, what else? I, uh, I'd love to see those fingerprints. Yeah, his thing. So, um, that's the th- other thing I find fascinating is he doesn't seem to be that worried about his fingerprints. He does. He's not worried about his face, and he's not worried about his fingerprints, which makes me think he's not pre-planning a kind of an attack. He's not thinking. I'm going to kill her, I'm going to attack her, I'm going to steal from her. I don't think any of that is in his mind. I think he's just, I think he just thinks, uh, I'm going to, I, I'm going to hopefully have sex with her. I don't think he understands women, so I think he's he's thinking he's being romantic or, or something like that. Do you know, he's he's clearly deluded. There's, there's something going on, he doesn't understand people at all. Uh, and very arrogant and cocky, as people say. Um... And and trying to prove himself as well. I think that's a big thing, is the bullying in his past. Not to give him excuses, but the bullying in his past very much is him trying to say, I'm not a little boy, you know, I'm a man, look at me, I am a man. I think that's a big thing in his in his, um, in his his psyche. Uh, there seems to be, uh, it was referenced in a lot of the uh, reports on this, that there seemed to be more assault victims than than we know of than just burglary victims and uh, more of them seem to have these odd circular marks as well 
Uh, so uh, why he does it, we don't know. Why, why are they in a specific place? We don't know. Uh, this is one of those things that I think is just going to go on and on until we can really narrow it down. Some people have made speculations about it, but I, I, I just don't want to speculate. I would just rather know the truth and the facts. Um, it's amazing that it was that lighter that kind of um, led to his arrest. So it was, uh, as mentioned, it was owned by uh, William Sloan. I think it was Mark Markham Street over in Chelsea. Very nice street, very posh. Uh, the lighter was a Texas Gulf Sulfaco uh, lighter. Uh, it was... Uh, when it was published in the papers, a guardsman at the 1st Battalion Welsh Guards, which is where Mick worked, stationed at the Purbright camp down in Surrey, told his commanding officer that another guardsman called Mick owned a lighter like that. Um, uh, when they spoke to him, uh, he said that he'd been sold it uh, by a guardsman in the next bunk to him for five shillings. Uh, police that day travelled to the Welsh Guards camp in Purbright in Surrey. Uh, they said it was a triangular, it was a small chromium lighter uh, with red and white markings with a triangular stamp on it. Uh, when they checked his movements, obviously, unlike with the Blackout Ripper, where the Blackout Ripper seemed to be able to go in and out whenever he freaking felt like it, uh, at the Purbright camp, they seemed to have more of a better record on, on when people were in and out. So when police were able to look at the records, they were able to tell when he was on camp, when he was off camp, when he'd gone AWOL, and he had a habit of going AWOL quite a lot. So there were big gaps in there, but they were able to say, OK, we can't determine that he was definitely at the camp that night because he seemed to have gone missing. Um... 24th of November 1959 he was uh, charged at Chelsea Police Station so Chelsea Police Station if you go back that was where um, uh, John George Haig the acid bath murderer was uh, questioned as well uh, they looked at his fingerprints his fingerprints uh, exactly match what they've been looking for for Scarface Mick uh, he was interviewed by Chief Inspector Acott uh, and at that point, he was just being charged with burglary and theft. I quite like the way the police did this. They were like, they were like, we're not going to dive in with the heavy stuff first. We're just going to make him think that it's we we're just there for burglary and theft. And it was uh, how, interviewing him, and he was sitting there. He was all cocky and arrogant because he really thought he got away with it. He was like, you know, this is all great. I've just I've just committed some mur some burglaries. Yeah, so what? Not really a problem. Do you know, he'd been doing it for years, so they didn't really didn't really care. But it was when the police turned around and went, uh, "We're we're going to charge you for some serious offences in uh, Chelsea, Fulham, and Kilburn." And Kilburn is the only place that he went to because all of these burglaries were in the kind of the southwest end, so around Chelsea and uh, Knightsbridge and places like that, places that are really posh. But kind of um, Kilburn was out of his way, and the only reason he went up north, northwest was because that's where Veronica Murray's house was and uh, she was the one who got him in the taxi and said, we're going back to mine. Uh, again, uh, at, at all of these houses, he seems, seems to steal alcohol. Is he selling it or is he drinking it? I'm guessing he's probably drinking it. Um, but he seems to be stealing a lot of different things. Uh, what else have we got? I'm just I'm just diving through all my notes here. I've, I've tried to use as much as possible... Uh, to try and fill this out as much. Um, after he was, uh, he was cautioned for um, uh, cautioned and charged for uh, burglary, and it was then that the chief inspector came in and said, 
in addition to the case of housebreaking, I have already mentioned to you, we are already investigating a number of serious offences which I now believe you committed since December 1958 in Chelsea, Fulham and Kilburn districts. Um, uh, Michael said, everybody has been against me. Uh, the chief inspector listened to his story and said, you know, quite often he was lying, but we just sat there and listened to it. It's kind of so, sometimes a lot of... Um, people who are convicted you just let them talk and they will ha they will happily hang themselves because they just they think the more that they talk the more they get themselves out which is why a lot of people go no comment because even though it's annoying when you watch it on telly and you watch all these documentaries and you, you, the known criminal just goes no comment but it is actually quite smart in a way because the second you open your mouth you are fucked because you just go, well, uh, the second you say, well, uh, you're screwed. And they go, were you here? If you say yes, there you go. If you say no, that that could be a lie. You say maybe you've been evasive. Whereas, do you know, which is why the, the lawyers always say, just say no comment. Because no comment literally means no comment. So, uh, yeah. But Michael didn't. He waffled his way through it. Uh, well, I'm just trying to find his quote. He said, it is when I've been drinking that I do these things. I am all right when I'm sober. Yeah, all right. Uh, it has been worrying me for a long time and I wanted to go to a doctor. I'm glad it is all over. I will tell you what I remembered. Um, he gave a statement. So that night he gave a statement. His statement started at 8.10 p.m. Uh, and it continued till 10.40 p.m. Uh, with a 30-minute break. Uh, he confessed to a series of housebreakings and burglaries and the assault on Mabel Hill. Uh, they were able to prove the um, the Veronica Murray one anyway. It's also here that he said, my army mates think I'm queer. I've tried to show them that he's using queer as in unusual as opposed to uh, slam slander for uh, homosexual. I've tried to show that, although maybe, maybe not. Uh, I've tried to show them they're wrong. Maybe that's why he has a, a worry about his masculinity. Maybe, maybe not. We don't see. That's why I'd love to get that file. Uh, I've tried to show them they're wrong. My mates make me feel like I'm a nobody. So I have a drink and then I feel better and more important. Once I started the heavy drinking bouts, I liked it and kept it up. When I was drunk, very drunk, I would try anything. I wasn't fussy about what I did or what woman I went with. I'm glad I've been caught. I feel much better already. Uh, police uh, took his clothes. Uh, they left him with some uh, prison issue clothes and uh, they were sent to the uh, police laboratory at Hendon where they were able to get samples of that. Uh, he was charged on the 3rd of December 1959 and remanded at the Marlborough Street Police Court. Uh, that's over in Soho. That's uh, They use that quite a lot. Uh, let's just see what else um dowdle said nothing during his three minute appearance in court um uh, at that point they were still trying to piece together the timeline for uh the murder of veronica murray they'd got the date down to between the 11th and the 19th at that point but they're still piecing it together uh, he appeared in court. He was wearing a, a, a dark grey double-breasted civilian suit, which was said to be too large for him uh, as being uh, a little guy. He uh, he had to borrow a suit off one of the uh, detectives who was there. And I don't know whether they did it deliberately, but, but because he was a little guy, they gave him a suit that literally swamped him. You know what? Fuck him. He doesn't deserve a good suit. Uh, he was held at Brixton Police Station when he was on remand. Um... 
Later, he w- when he was charged, he would go to Wormwood Scrubs Prison, which is over at the back of uh, the, 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 the East Acton area. This is also uh, where they had the, we've got the um, Wormwood Scrubs uh, massacre. You can go back and listen to that episode if you like. Um, when he was in prison, this is a nice little detail that I picked up, and I thought, what a scumbag. This sums him up. Uh, uh, obviously, he was in prison. Uh, he had his first Christmas in prison. Um uh, instead of having turkey, he said he didn't want turkey for his Christmas dinner in in prison. Instead, he wanted a steak. So on Christmas Eve, he had a lovely steak. Uh, and for Christmas lunch, he also had a steak. Uh, friends, he had some friends, uh, arranged for him to have food sent in to him. Uh, and uh, Dowdell had all of the trimming, trimmings on his Christmas Day dinner at Wormwood Scrubs. Oh, lovely. Well, I'm glad he had a lovely day. Um, psychiatric assessment was done by Archibald D. Lee of uh, Bedlam Hospital. That is uh, the infamous Bedlam Asylum. And they said that Dowdle was a psychopath and a sexual pervert. His characteristics were aggressiveness, impulsiveness, lying, sexual perversion, and often alco- alcoholism. And he had no sense of uh, guilt or remorse. Uh, he, he was seen twice and interviewed at Brixton Prison. What else we got? What else we got? He believed that um, uh, psychiatrists said that uh, described him as a psychopath, a social misfit, and untruthful. He believed that other people mocked and maligned him, and that he stole to pay others to do the jobs for him. And he attacked women he uh, who rejected him. Uh, what else we got? Uh, uh, they put him on a, an an electroencephalograph, which is the um, the 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 thingamajig doodah thingamajig. Um, what was hang on? What was it they said there? Sorry, I'm trying. I'm trying to talk and read my notes at this. Um, it it detected that he had a defect in his personality, impaired by mental responsibility, especially after drink. Um, they were able to kind of test him, give him kind of uh, test his thought processes and things like that, and there seems to be a lot of misfiring in his brain, as you'd expect. Ah, it was a two-day trial held in court one at the Old Bailey, which began on the 20th of January 1960 before Mr Justice Donovan, uh, with the prosecutor Alistair Morton and the defence by Desmond uh, Trenner. Uh, he pleaded not guilty to murder, but said he would plead guilty to manslaughter if diminished responsibility was accepted, uh, which it was. Uh, pathologists who were there, uh, Dr Donald Tear, who was the pathologist, a childcare officer, uh, Michael's brother, some of the guardsmen, uh, medical officer of Brixton Prison, who was Dr. Bixby, uh, and uh, Sergeant uh, Plotworthy, uh, uh, Sergeant Peter Norman Plotworthy, Corporal Ronald, Ronald Hopkins of the Welsh Guards. These were the guys who he kind of met with uh, over in Guildford when he got really, really pissed and he drank like five half pints of gin and got really pissed. They were there to give kind of character studies on him. Uh, in the evidence there was also his fingerprints, the lighter, the stol- many of the stolen items, um, eyewitness testimony, uh, the character references from colleagues, psychiatric reports, uh, as well as the pink ornamental dumbbells. Um, uh, but he also gave his own confession when he was there, uh, which matched the murder of Veronica Murray. 
uh it's in there that we use a lot of the uh the text that i use in part one about how he met veronica over in the trafalgar square because pretty much even though he glossed over a couple of details pretty much most of that is true um he was sentenced on the 21st of january 1961 sentenced to life in prison so obviously we got uh the the death penalty was already at that point where people were saying we're not going to do this anymore it it uh, so therefore he was given life even though technically he'd stolen things therefore this should have led to a death sentence but it wasn't uh, he served for 15 years 5 months and 11 days with his sentence finishing on the 1st of July 1975 um, uh, what did the judge say the judge said something the judge said uh, he felt it was unsafe to sentence him to a fixed term stating the sentence must be one which will enable authorities to detain you until they are satisfied you can safely mingle mingle with your fellow creatures um but in the end uh he was released on license in july 1975 as mentioned he was suffering from a lung infection and chronic hepatitis who would have thought that a man who spends most of his time shagging sex workers uh, and probably, let's be honest, let's be honest, probably committing a shit ton of rapes. I'm guessing that he is that kind of a man, um, that he would have hepatitis um, and a lung infection, probably down to the fact that they said he was a heavy smoker as well. So he was released unlicensed, suffering these illnesses. Initially, he went to 94 Dart. Dartsmouth Park Hill near Archway which is a nice little house it seems to be a halfway house uh, but then he was transferred to the Royal Free Hospital where he died on the 10th of November 1976 good riddance he's dead so uh, that was a good thing so who knows who knows how many people he actually killed I would love to know I'd love to know more about those attacks I, I tried to do as much research as I could on this but it's it really it was piecemeal there's nothing really out there and I was just piecing it together from different bits and pieces so yeah I could do a whole episode hopefully I would love to do a whole episode just on the burglaries themselves the burglaries maybe one on the sexual assaults one on the attempted murders and then hopefully some more murders but this without that police file and you know it's it's not available i've tried doing a, a freedom of information requests before but for these files unless you've got a very specific reason you know you can't just say i'm doing a podcast then they're like well, fuck go go fuck off it's like that's not important but if you're i'm sure even family members can't get it but if it's you know your government agency doing some work on it yeah the rest of us no not gonna happen so i've tried many times but i always get rejected so uh let's do some answers to the questions so question number one which actor's hotel room did michael burgle it was george sanders who uh in the i think it was the 1950s 1940s 1950s could be wrong uh, he played the saint uh question number two from this hotel room uh, Michael stole jewellery, shoes, some alcohol, and what else? He stole a tube of toothpaste. Uh, question number three. What now stands where Ismailia Road once stood? Ooh, a sneaky question there. If he said the flats, it was wrong. It was the bridal way behind the flats. 
if you go on to uh, uh, on Patreon, I posted some uh, a little video and uh, some photos, so you can have a look at what it looks like today. Uh, it was a real nightmare to find that street because literally the the road maps are, are very it's it's a hard road to find. Uh, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It was demolished years ago. It wasn't in good condition then. A lot of the maps aren't as accurate as they should be. Uh, I actually found some people who were on a forum who were uh, doing local history, who were, who were kind of searching Fulham anyway, and they managed to track down where Ismailia Road was, hence Ismailia um, House. Um, question four, what colour overcoat was Michael wearing on the night he, was, he attacked Mabel? It was white. Why he was wearing white? Who wears white? I mean, I never wear anything white because I'm a mucky bastard and I get muck everywhere, but white, for fuck's sake. Uh, question number five. What tube station did Michael meet? What tube station did Mabel meet Michael? It was Leicester Square Tube. Uh, question number six. Uh, name Mabel's children. They were Alan, Jean, and Leslie. Question number seven. Uh, what was what was the only known item Michael stole from Veronica's bedsit? It was a bottle of whiskey. But of course, we don't know what was in. It's like if someone—that's the thing. If someone walked into my boat now and stole something, how would anyone know? Like even, even I don't think I would know if someone, unless it was something really obvious. But if they just nicked something off the side or something, like I used to have it like an or an ornate uh, boating bucket. It's like, like a water bucket that used to be on my roof, and I, I was mistakenly moored up in Hackney stab central um and then one day i just went my bucket and i think over a couple of days someone had obviously nicked it and i never noticed so um how quite how they would notice if someone had nicked something from her room we don't know but uh apparently it was just just a bottle of whiskey it seemed to have nicked uh, question eight where did michael go back to after veronica's murder it was the Union Jack Club at Waterloo Station, uh, which is the same place that uh, Richard Rhodes Henley, the Canadian masturbator, was, and the murderer of Peggy Roberts, Roberts, uh, who was uh, who was pushed off Waterloo Bridge. Uh, we've done that episode recently. Uh, question number nine: How many years was Michael in the Welsh Guards? Four. And question ten: What was thrown into the River Thames? It was the bracelet he stole from George Sanders' hotel room. Ooh, exciting. So that's that, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, that episode. That was episode. Uh, next week, I've mentioned, we've got a one-parter and then and then a nice special two-parter, and that takes us into the end of the year. Thank God. Oh, exhausted. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.